Here we go. November the 14th, 2010, lecture discussion number 23 on the book of Romans. And I am a little wore down today, and uh, I hope you uh, can give me a little mercy for that. We'll just, we'll just gut it out today. I think it's, let me say this, I hardly ever say something like this. Uh, I'm glad you're here, those of you who made it. I know it's difficult to come back from a Friday like that just emotionally, much less anything else, but I, I'm, I'm really... I'm going to finish 2 Samuel 21 today, and I think it's so exciting. It's one of the most thrilling uh, prophecies, I believe, in all of Scripture once you start to dig into it. And I was worried that uh, I know Bill and Bonnie are going to be very unhappy. Uh, not unhappy, but they're going to be disappointed that they missed it. And, and uh, so I'm glad there will be a few of us here. And in any event, it will be on the Internet and all of that, as always. But... Uh, you might remember that last week my stated goal was to get to Romans today, get back to Romans, and that remains my plan. Um, but we still got a lot of loose ends that we got to clean up. And as I started writing that earlier, uh, I realized that I wasn't going to make it to Romans today. I wrote a big nope here because to tie all these up, I'm just going to repeat them and repeat them and repeat them in a way that makes, uh, makes you put it together. That's my plan today. So I don't think we're going to get to Romans. We might. It's possible, but doubtful. Certainly no promises. Second uh, Samuel 21 is very difficult to interpret. This is the last of it. If you had not been here for any of the previous Second Samuel um, uh, lectures, this one might make, uh, be very difficult for you to put together, but I'll do my best. Obviously, this is number 23. If this is your first one, then... You're going to flunk the final. There's just nothing I can do for you. You know, uh, maybe you can cheat. That's what everybody else does. So, uh, we'll hopefully you'll figure that out. But we're going to complete Second uh, Samuel 21 today, no matter what, and so that we can enter Romans uh, as as we have. And again, this Second Samuel, very mysterious. We're confronted with a very mysterious Old Testament passage, an Old Testament event where literal, actual, historical people did and said the very things that are recorded there that actually did happen exactly as it was put down. That, and so you always know that. That's the way it is. But focus on what God has placed within their lives, because after all, you know, the purpose of the Old Testament is to do what? What is the purpose of the Old Testament? It has one purpose. What is it? It's to testify of Jesus Christ, His person and His redemptive work. And He commands us to go into the Old Testament, John 5.39, and look for Him, search for Him, search the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament, John 5.39. They testify of Me. So that's a commandment, and that must be our foremost concern. And that's how we must approach 2 Samuel 21, or we're not going to correctly understand it. We're going to fail. 2 Samuel 21 is a prophecy, it's a testimony, it's a proof of who Jesus Christ is. I said that over and over again the other day. I had 379 people crammed in here and probably another hundred in the back hiding up against the walls, another hundred downstairs, probably what we had here. Over and over again, I said, Jesus Christ is the I Am. Because you have to have that. If you don't have that, you will perish. So you must believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And that's what Second Samuel 21 is. It's a prophecy, a testimony, a proof of who He is and what His purposes are. And the Holy Spirit selected 
for the scriptures, literally true occurrences and incidences. Incidences? Is that a word? Incidences? I like it. It's a nice word. It might be incidents. Maybe I'm co-opting incidents and coincidence and ended up with coincidences. Anyway, it may not be a word. I did get told, by the way, it's another little thing that I had. I had someone come up to me that is uh, considered to be quite literate and um, uh, quite articulate come up to me and say, you use words that nobody else uses. Okay. What words could I have been using that nobody else uses? Metaphysical implications of subatomic diameter. That, that, that was the one. He said, I've been to a lot of, lot of funeral services. I had never heard metaphysical implications of subatomic diameter. But that is important, critical. It belongs in that funeral service, and I think you agree. I hope you do. But anyway, the point of it is, is that the Holy Spirit selects literal true occurrences and he uses them to testify to us as, the, as to the person of Christ. And the Bible reveals Jesus Christ as the I am, as the creator God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh, the creator of all things. So that mankind can now see the infinite invisible. We cannot see the invisible. We obviously, duh. We cannot see the infinite. We are finite. So Christ has added on humanity and come so that we can see the infinite invisible. Jesus Christ is the infinite invisible made visible. That is one of the profound scriptures in the New Testament. That's Colossians 1.15. And the book of John specifically says, the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John for one purpose and one purpose only, to put things in, a, in an order. He selected seven things, essentially, that he put them in an order under the Passover pattern. He actually wrote his book so that it has a Passover pattern. That is why it ends with 153 fish. And he chose them. The Holy Spirit used John to chose them, put that order in as an absolute proof that Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the triune Godhead, John 20, 30 through 31. That's why he wrote it. That's what he says its purpose is. And that's what it is. So I repeat this again, because whenever we confront difficulty in the Old Testament, and 2 Samuel 21 is difficult. Whenever we confront it... Whoops, I skipped a page, did I? No, I didn't. Whenever we confront difficulty... We have to find where Christ is represented. Okay? So, let's reread 2 Samuel 21. Now open your textbook, 2 Samuel 21. It's before Kings. It's on page 459. We're only going to read 10 through 14 as a quick refresher. Um, Hopefully you remember the key points that precedes verses 10 through 14. I'm, I would put them on the board normally, but I have others, other things to go, and I was too lazy, and I only cleaned one half of the board. But let's just really quick, while, while people are reading it, this is your chance to study for the exam. A famine has occurred, three years of drought. I have three years of drought. Now remember, what do we do when we're trying to find the person of Christ or his redemptive work, pieces of information about what he will do? 
A famine has occurred. Three years of drought. God shut off the rain because Saul and his bloodthirsty sons sought to exterminate the Gibeonites. And they came very, very close to killing every single Gibeonite. And the Gibeonites had special status and protection from God. They're called his devoted ones. And Saul sought to kill them all. And that's an amazing description that the Gibeonites were called the devoted ones when you consider how they began in Genesis 34. Begin is a, is a, is a, I'm using that begin in scripture, not their beginning. But in scripture they begin as rapists and killers. And they end up being the devoted ones of God that he protects. And the, and Saul and his bloodthirsty house are trying to get rid of them. Obvious question, why? Notice quickly, I hope you see this quickly because of the contrast here. You have King Saul seeking to slaughter and consume the devoted ones of God. Contrast that with David. Now, who read ahead, by the way? I haven't finished the rest of Samuel 21. Because what happens from 15 on, verse 15 on? Do you read ahead? Do you think, okay, maybe I should read a little bit along. I get some context here. Of course you didn't. You only do the odds. If you assign the odds, you only do the odds. It never occurs to you if you do the evens, it'll help you do the odds. And all the time I taught, billions and billions and billions of years of teaching, I never had one single student do the evens. And why, by the way, why did I always pick the odds? Because the answers to the evens were in the back of the book, right? That didn't make sense. I just get a copy of the back of the book. But my point is, is that if you'll read ahead and read behind, you'll find things. What happens is, of course, you have King Saul killing the devoted ones of God. And then you have, in contrast to that, King David exterminating the Nephilimic giants. He's killing the giants. So I have Saul trying to exterminate the Gibeonites, and I have David exterminating the giants, that contrast exists, and a tremendous amount of controversy over Saul, but we know that Saul, by how he's described, when I say controversy, everyone wants to know what his, he, he's a Benjamite, but exactly what kind of Benjamite is he? He's the tallest, he's the most beautiful. He's clearly an Antichrist type. We see that because he's killing the protected chosen of God, isn't he? And David is a type of Christ. He is slaying the giants of Canaan. But the key element, as we covered last week, is that the Gibeonites forego their right to life for life. What I mean by that is they have been slaughtered and now a famine has come. And David goes to them and says, what do you want me to do? We have to make this right. They can invoke Leviticus 24, 17 through 22, Exodus 21, 23 through 25, which is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. They could have demanded life for life. That's one of the keys to this because they did not do that. They did not demand life for life. And the other key to it, is the three forbiddens, and we went over two of them, the father and the son. The son cannot be executed for the father's sin. The father cannot be executed for the son's sin. And it seems that that happened here, but it did not. And the human asked, that's forbidden. It's also forbidden to offer human sacrifice. And it seems to some that that happened here. It did not. But there's another forbidden that we have to cover. It is forbidden. It is not permitted to leave a body hanging 
past sundown. It must be cut down. And these seven were left for months. I have the position that I will defend forever because of Jephthah's daughter. We're going to get to it as we go. But these were left for two months. The From the beginning of the spring harvest to when the second rain of the spring harvest should come. Approximately two months. I'm going to say exactly two months. But if you combine the two of what I just said, the Gibeonites refusing a life-for-life compensation and the seemingly contradiction to taking them down by sundown of Deuteronomy 21-23, you have the solution right there. Now you've got it in your hands. How do you use it? How do you unlock this very difficult, complex thing? But you have it in your hand, and that, of course, is to find Christ with it. And life for life should just fly off the page and whoop you upside the head when you see that they gave up their right from life to life, life for life. There is a big deal, because a life is required for a life. Think about that for a moment. What are we talking about? A life is required for a life. What am I talking about? I'll do it again. A life is required for a life. What am I talking about? That's right. It's clearly part of the crucifixion process, the redemptive work of Christ, aren't I? God requires a life for a life. And they refused it. The Gibeonites instead substituted seven in place of thousands. Thousands of Israelites should have been executed as the price to be paid for Saul killing thousands of Gibeonites. I should have a life for a life. Instead, the Gibeonites substitute seven. Okay? Second Samuel 21, 10 through 14. Now, Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. So she has mourning clothes on. She's the concubine of Saul. From the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. So she is protecting the seven, the bones of the seven. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the streets of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up at the Philistines and struck down Saul and Gilboa. Actually, you could read the story, Saul falls on his sword because he knows he's impending death. And the Philistines mutilated his body. They, they cut his head off and they hung him up on a wall, essentially, with his sons. And something very important, I'm just going to say it again. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son. Something very important is there. What is it? There's something missing there. Because it wasn't just Saul and it wasn't just David. I got two sons missing. What's the obvious question? Why did the Holy Spirit leave out the other names of those two sons? Why didn't their bones go? Jonathan's very important. Who is Jonathan? Jonathan is the son of Saul who was devoted to, was the great friend of, David. And David has a promise to Jonathan. They were very close. Anyway, 
So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed... Saul is gathered to his father. Those of you who were here will remember Genesis 15 from Friday, 15, 15. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, and after that, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Okay? Now let's add some, De- some Deuteronomy, because uh, it is critical to understand as much as possible. We're going to take this apart by looking at Rizpah. She is making a theological statement. She comes out there, puts on ashes and mourning clothes, sackcloth, and she fights and fights and fights to keep those bones from being taken down. And so we have to figure out what she's doing. We need to know why and what so that we can figure out who she is. What do I mean by who she is? She is a woman in this, in this dramatic theodicy. She is a playing a part and she's a woman central to this. Women are always what in Scripture? Nation, yeah, bad. <laughs> That's very funny. No, not always. Mostly, but not always. No, I'm kidding about mostly. Um, women are symbols and types of nations or of ecclesiastical units or church um, doctrine. So we have to figure out who she is, and how do we figure out who she is? Where do we find it? What do we do? i got to figure out why Rizpah does what she's doing here. Why is she doing it? Well, so what do I do? I find out everywhere else I can in Scripture where this is happening. So we go to Deuteronomy 28. So back we go. Find Deuteronomy 28. And this is extraordinary. This is the uh, portion that is very difficult to read. Someday I want to sit down and... Read it all to you. And I want to read it um, in a way that it does its justice. And I promise you that you can go to a lot of churches and you will never hear Deuteronomy 28 read. Especially starting at 15. So naturally, I want to start at 15. So here we go. Read along. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the protect and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed, and until the perish until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doing in which you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever with the sword, with scorching, with mildew, and shall pursue you until you perish. You in the picture? Let's continue. 
And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and to dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air. And the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. Who that? That is Rizpah. So write Rizpah right there. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. You shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall only be oppressed and plundered continually, and no one will save you. And it goes on all that way to verse 68. I only did 14 of them. It keeps going. It's unbelievably powerful. These are the curses on the nation of Israel if they are disobedient to his statutes and his commandments. Okay? And notice that they follow the blessings. So first I get the blessings. 28, 1 through 14 is the blessings. 15 through 68, the curses. Blessings, curses. The blessings that would come if the nation of Israel... Uh, would be a nation of priests? Now, would they? Did they? See, that's the great question. Would Israel be the nation of priests and get the blessings? Would they be the great witness of God's truth in the world? Would they teach the world of God's plan of salvation and get the blessings? Would they teach the just shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17? Or would they descend into a human-based, pagan-based, works-based mess filled with hate for the Gentiles, filled with oppression and hopelessness and hypocrisy? Which would they choose? Which did they choose? We know what they chose. We have Matthew 12. We have Matthew 23. That tells us the decision of the nation of Israel. He wanted them to be a witness to the Gentiles, to teach the Gentiles of salvation by grace through faith. And instead, they put up the most oppressive, hypocrisy-filled, hopeless, evil, wickedness ever devised by man. Matthew 12 and Matthew 23 reveal their rejection of salvation by grace through the blood of, through the blood substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God Himself came before them. The infinite invisible became visible and stood before them and they rejected Him and they rejected His Messiahship. But I want you, all we're pulling out of this is 26. 28, 26. There's Rizpah. He said no one would fight off the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. But Rizpah did. Rizpah is the one who is frightening away the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. It is word for word Rizpah. Okay? So that's where she starts. So, again, Israel 
King Saul, together with the nation of Israel. I got King Saul and Israel. Back to 2 Samuel 21. Back you go. 2 Samuel 21, 3 or 2, it talks about Saul and his zeal for the children of Israel. So together, Saul and the children of Israel, Saul and the nation of Israel, delight in the slaughter of the Gibeonites. The one people in the nation whom God had given, given in great mercy, great mercy, eternal life. The Gibeonites were given it. They're Gentiles. They're Canaanites. They're Hivites. Salvation they got. The Gibeonites became willing slaves to the God of creation. In exchange, what did they get? Eternal, everlasting honor. And they know it was a gift. And they know better than anyone alive at this time that they are undeserving, that God is loving and kind and wishes that none should perish. And they got that because they should have been exterminated and wiped out by God. Instead, He let them live. They know beyond any doubt that salvation is a gift. It must be free because of its great infinite value. No man on earth can earn it by any means. It is the just shall live. The just shall have eternal life by believing and by faith. And Israel wants to kill them all. And it wants to kill them all because of what they believe, what they know is true. And so if you try to wipe out the devoted ones of God, if you're trying to kill the doctrine of salvation by grace, what's God going to give you for that? Back to Deuteronomy 28. Read it for yourself. I particularly like the itching and the boiling part. Curses are going to come. He has given to Israel the truth. And they instead try to kill everybody that is a witness to that truth. And then they go the opposite direction. And the curses come. By the way, this is the tribulation. The purpose of the tribulation, I say it a lot, I'll say it again. There's three purposes to the tribulation. The number one purpose is to isolate Israel. It isn't that he takes the church away because he likes the church so much and, oh, he wants to give us all popcorn and candy and it's all really wonderful. No, the purpose is to isolate the nation of Israel. It's called breaking the will of the stiff-necked people. The other purposes are, of course, to win in the wicked ones. And the other purpose is worldwide revival, because he wishes that none should perish. But back we are to man and free will and the rest of that discussion, which we won't do today. But I want you to know, notice the curses come because Israel is trying to kill and did kill most of the Gibeonites. Okay, now here's what we're going to put on the board. Hopefully most of you have figured it out already. The Gibeonites, they forego... They forego life for life. They say, we do not want Israel killed. We do not want the same number of Israelites killed, of Gibeonites killed. We won't do that. And instead, they substitute seven. They substitute seven. Rizpah is the one who comes and fights off the birds. Rizpah protects the substitute. 
She protects the substitution, right? And she will not let the substitution be disgraced or cursed. And that is why she fights off the birds because and the beasts. Because if the bones are devoured, then the person who is hanging is disgraced and cursed. And she will not allow that. She will fight off the birds and the beasts of the earth, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And we talked about who that represents in order to keep the blessing upon the substitute. She is going to fight off the substitute of life for life and protect it from being disgraced. Now, then we have David. David comes. okay, And what does he do? David comes and he gathers the bones. He comes to gather. He's a gatherer. Again, find Christ. He gathers the bones of Saul and Jonathan. And David combines the bones with the bones. He combines the bones with the bones of the substitute. So he mixes the bones of Saul and Jonathan with the bones of the seven who are the substitute for the life for life. Okay, and then God does what? After all of that, God accepts. God heeds. God accepts. And now the famine is ended. The curse is ended. The nation and the land are restored. And the blessing is restored. So there it is. So I'm going to reword it now. Because I want you to try to work it through yourself. The Gibeonites forego their right to kill thousands of the guilty and instead substitute seven. They present seven. They present seven to the apostate land of Israel. So Israel sees that it was not life for life. Instead, it was a seven presented to them, and God accepted it. Rizpah protects the bones, stops the the disgrace. It's forbidden to leave them up unless it's forbidden. This is one of the forbiddens. That's why it's So important to know your forbiddens here. It's forbidden because no one will fight for you. But if someone fights for you, then you can leave them hanging. So, Rizpah is the one who eliminates the forbidden. How does she know that, by the way? She protects them from disgrace. She protects the substitute from being disgraced. And David gathers and buries, and God heeds and restores. Okay? Now, let's add some more to it. Let's go over it again. I'm purposely leaving this out, or doing it like this, so that you will fill it in yourself. And Mark has probably already filled it in. And so I can call on Mark here. Oh, good, a question. I was thinking I could call on Mark and we could go right to the football game. But okay. A concubine. Okay. 
Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call a concubine a harlot because she's not. She is a she's you know she's legal in the sense that what I mean by legal is she is used in negotiations. She signifies things. Now, um, if you have control of the concubines of the king, then you are the new king, by the way. And so it's a very interesting thing. I would not say some have speculated as to um, who she is, but we really don't have time to go over her lineage today. Just know that she is a concubine and she did give Saul two sons. Okay, now let's let's keep going here. The Gibeonites are what? They're the remnant. These are the Gibeonites that survived. They're the remnant Gibeonites. The remnant of God's chosen devoted ones. In their love for apostate Israel, because they could have killed thousands of them, And by the way, if David doesn't kill thousands of them, if they did say, and they wouldn't have said because they understand what they're supposed to do because they're theological geniuses and they got that way because God loved them and taught them in their temple service and he took them and they were all rapists and killers before that. That's how they began. I know it's many generations later, but they're phenomenal people. If I had to do it over again, I wouldn't call this cliffside. We're certainly not on a cliff anymore. We were. Okay, maybe we still are. (laughs) <laughs> but the one thing I would have done is I would have called us the Seventh Gibeonite Church of Anchorage or the something like that. Huh? No, this is Cliffside. We are what we call parasites on New Grace. <laughs> Those of you who want to know that. <laughs> By the way, I always made fun of him. His daughter can't hear me and he won't listen to the... To the uh, can you really have such a thing as new grace? Can you? No, I mean. <laughs> but we're not paying any rent, so don't any of you ever say anything. Uh, not one. Not one. <laughs> they used to be the Church of Restoration, and I would call them all the time and say, uh, I'd call my, my brother up and say, Hey, uh, I got this chest of drawers, got some scratches in it, you know. And he'd go, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I got, I got, you know, I got to strip it, I rebuild the shelves, I mean, the, the, the drawers in it, and um, like I need a new, uh, at least three, four, five coats of lacquer, and I need a paint booth, and I wondered if maybe you guys, you are the Church of Restoration. <laughs> then I'd call and say, I've got a car, it's rusting out. <laughs> Eventually, they went to New Grace. Naturally, I found something wrong with that, too. <laughs> Don't ever say a word. No one will ever know, especially the thousands of people on the Internet. Okay. The remnant of God's chosen devoted ones in their love for apostate Israel. Notice what I'm saying about that because they could have asked that every one of them be killed. They wouldn't have done it because they knew not to do it and they knew that they, it should never be done. But they could have wiped out thousands of them. Hypothetically, we'll give it, the, we'll, we'll grant the hypothetical. If, if David doesn't kill the nation of Israel to get to the exact number of people, uh, life for life, What will happen? 
He has no choice but to kill them because if he doesn't, what will happen? The famine will continue. The drought will continue. And the Israelites, as I said uh, last week, understood perfectly. They all expected life for life out of the Gibeonites. Instead, they got seven presented to them as a substitute. So, the remnant of God's chosen devoted ones in their love for apostate Israel, in their love for those that hate the truth of the, of the just shall have eternal life by grace alone, they, the Gibeonites, in love, substitute only seven what? What are they, seven what? Oh, well, done in the second row. Here, let me write it better. They substitute seven sons. Seven, the divine number of perfection. A seven son is substituted instead of a thousand to to die, uh, thousands and thousands. A seven son is substituted and is made a curse for many, Galatians 3.13. The life for the lives is what this becomes. And now a concubine Rizpah in ashes and sackcloth shows up to protect the substitute. The life for the lives, the substitute's sons, to fight for how long does she fight for? She fights for two, a two months. Okay? She fights for a two. And that's very significant. See Jephthah's daughter, Judges 11.37. Jephthah came home. If he got a great victory, he would dedicate the first thing he saw to temple service. So he would put it in the temple. If he saw an animal, then that animal would be taken to the temple and put into temple service. Instead, he saw his daughter, who was unmarried. And so he was in a position with an oath, and he dedicated his daughter to a life of working in the temple. And she was never married. And she went into the woods and mourned her virginity, or the fact that she would not have a son or a daughter, but specifically a son, because Jephthah and his daughter were very, very knowledgeable, and they were very devoted, and they wanted to be in something. What did they want to be in? This was a great sacrifice for Jephthah. This was his only daughter. And now she would be in temple service. She would never have a child. So she went into the woods to mourn her virginity. For how long do you think? Two months. And she is not able, therefore, to be in the messianic line. And nor is Jephthah, this great man of God. So it's a two. Rizpah, the concubine, protects for a two. A woman she is either a nation or she is ecclesiastical, uh, an ecclesiastical group that gives you, I'm going to give you, she is a nation or she is a church. Which is she? And she fights to protect the substitute seven for a two. And then David comes, the shepherd king, the son, David, the rod of Jesse, comes. After that, too, 
and gathers the bones and combines them. Where else do I have bones combined, by the way? You can do this. Elisha, absolutely right. I have bones combined in Elisha. If I touch bones to Elisha's bones, how good a deal is that for the bones? That's a great deal. Soldier thrown onto the bones of Elisha, the twelfth miracle of Elisha, and he is resurrected. So, David comes and gathers the bones. He takes the bones of the substituted seven son and mixes in the bones of Saul and Jonathan. How good a deal is that? Gathers them up. After a two. After that. Okay, so let's try it now with God. God curses Israel. He takes them out of service for killing the Gibeonites, which is the doctrine of grace. When did he do that? Because this is a prophecy. When did he take Israel out? He took them out in Matthew 12 for a two. After they recognize the doctrine, he puts them back in service. He restores the nation and the land to a nation of priests who are blessed who lead the nations, Deuteronomy 28, 13, is one of the blessings. Have you put this together? No? Okay. I need more soda. Then. Somebody, we forgot my little pedestal here. So I have to keep making that noise for those of you on the Internet. That's me reaching down. Ah. Ah. There's that sound again. Okay. The compliment to this, frankly, um, this is a timeline. God has hidden his timeline here. He's trying to tell you how long it will be from the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ to when he comes and gathers the bones and reestablishes the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 37, by the way, is a good place to go. So is also the, uh, the uh, parable of the uh, sower in Matthew 13, because the Gibeonites are sowing the seed of salvation by grace, and the birds come, and Rizpah fights the, the, the birds off, and... So you have all of these things that will work and fit together. But the timeline, I hope, is obvious to you. How long before Israel uh, is brought back into service? It's How long? It's a two. Hmm? No, that's how long they're in service. How long is it between the time that they are taken out of service to the time that they are put back in service? It's a two. How long has it been? It was A.D. 29. I do this all the time. You can buy my book. Okay, I don't really, I don't really have a book. He took them out of service, A.D. 29, when they rejected him, Matthew 12. They rejected his Messiahship. 
And they slid over. They're still moving. They still haven't been replaced. Replacement theology is not true. But now we are in the two. We are in the period of two, the Rizpah period, if you will, or the Jephthah's daughter period. That's what we are in. It is called the dispensational age of grace. That's correct. The gathering of the church is occurring now. The church is being builded. At the end of the period of the church, then the nation of Israel will again be the focus of God. They will have to go through a tremendous time of tribulation and their will will have to be broken and then they will reach out and mourn for the one whom they have pierced and they will understand that Jesus Christ is God and they will understand that the only salvation is the salvation by grace and grace alone is exactly what happens to Peter at the end of the book of John where Peter cannot answer the question with regard to Christ's deity, he does not say until he's asked three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Finally, he says, you're God, you are omniscient. And finally, that's the answer God's asking for out of the nation of Israel. And then he puts Peter into service, Israel into service, after a two. So, for those of you who have no retirement, or those of you who work for the Government and your retirement is going to go into bankruptcy. Ha! <laughs> huh? Two thousand twenty-nine, boys and girls. I got to have seven years before that. How come? Because I got a seven-year tribulation. So that gives me two thousand twenty-two. I got to burn them fuel. Ezekiel thirty-eight. God, burn that field. I did seven years burn that field. Ooh, 2015. Cool. I can go for that. Had a guy tell me recently, I've been predicting the end of the world within 10 or 15 years for 10 or 15 years. So don't buy my book. But understand the timeline is there. There's a timeline to this, and it's a two. The earth, the church... Sorry, the, the church will be gathered and builded for a two. So, what's that? Oh, did you say two millennia? I thought you said a millennia. Oh, okay. Two millennia is correct. I thought you were talking about the millennial rule of, of Israel. All I heard was the millennial part. So you are absolutely right. Two millennia. And that is what's going on. He has hidden this great prophecy in 2 Samuel 21. So I want you to start reading it and figure it out yourselves. It does me no good to figure it out for you, does it? It is up to you. <laughs> Thank you for saying so. Let's, let's rise and be dismissed.